This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the number of extreme weather events is climbing. It's costing the U.S. billions of dollars every year and costing Americans their lives. Now there are calls for reform from survivors who say they're struggling to get federal help. Then, world leaders are once again talking climate change. It comes a year after many agreed to step up efforts to reduce their carbon emissions. But since then, few have. And the federal government is nothing without its employees, but some say it's facing a leadership crisis. We'll talk to the president of the Partnership for Public Service about this issue. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. On September 28th, Hurricane Ian made landfall over Florida as a Category 4 storm. More than 100 people died due to the storm, and damages are estimated to be in the billions. But for survivors, getting help isn't always easy. A new report written by nearly a dozen organizations across the country calls for changes to the disaster recovery system. Maddie Sloan is the director of disaster recovery and fair housing project at the nonprofit Texas Appleseed and lead author of that report. Maddie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your report says that uh, survivors experience, quote, the disaster after the disaster and that the recovery system is broken. Why? I mean, it's absolutely broken. Uh, you know, this report comes out of the lived experience of, of disaster survivors uh, from across the country, and the recommendations come from them. You know, overall, we can look at, um, you know, the past decade of disasters and see that people are not fully recovered, that some families and communities are left behind and less able to recover, and that we are not better protected for future disasters. Um, you know, we are seeing communities that have not recovered from one disaster be hit over and over and over again. And as disasters become more severe and more frequent, um, and we have multiple disasters happening across the United States, it's becoming clearer and clearer that our, our system was not built um, to handle these disasters. So what is that current framework for a disaster recovery? So the current framework is really built on a couple of assumptions that disasters are infrequent, that they are fairly localized, and that generally they can be handled by the affected state or local government. So the federal system doesn't come in uh, until the state or local government says, we don't have enough resources. You know, the federal system is intended as a backstop. It's intended to cover costs that aren't insured or that can't be handled by state and local governments. So the state or local government has to ask, uh, or the state or territorial or tribal government, excuse me, has to ask for a federal disaster declaration. Uh, and then FEMA, in conjunction with the White House, determines whether uh, a declaration is warranted, uh, generally based on the level of damage. And only when that declaration is issued uh, do, f do federal resources come into play. So that is when FEMA starts coordinating response, uh, starts um, uh, helping with response, starts running uh, recovery programs. 
Um, and that federal declaration, you know, can include a number of different programs. So the federal declaration might include uh, help as limited as debris clearing or, uh, you know, broad enough to provide help to individual survivors and families. And, and Maddie, you know, when you mentioned FEMA, because that's what people think of when they mm -hmm. think of federal disaster assistance, but you say that FEMA's application and eligibility process is a major barrier for disaster survivors. It is. Uh, you know, from, uh, you know, the starting point where, you know, FEMA asks people to apply online. Uh, well, if you don't have power, it's very difficult to do that. Uh, it is very difficult for communities and families that don't have access to internet um, to apply online. Um, it's particularly difficult, uh, for example, for populations like seniors uh, to access uh, those resources. Um, people wait on hold for hours, uh, you know, when they try to apply uh, over the phone or struggle to get to disaster recovery centers where FEMA is supposed to help them fill out applications. Uh, there are very extensive documentation requirements. Uh, many people have lost documentation in a disaster and it can take time effort and money to get copies of that documentation. And, and you do make recommendations to improve barriers. Uh, you say the yes. first one is to get money to people fast. So what are some of the ways the federal government can do that? Well, you know, I think we saw that during the during COVID-19 uh, with tax credits, with um, um, you know, the, the expansion of the child uh, tax credit uh, with direct deposit into people's accounts. I think we can also see that, uh, you know, families who are already receiving uh, food stamps or uh, Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, the federal government could directly provide increased benefits rather, again, than waiting for uh, a state process um, and a state request. And, and the report also says that, uh, quote, flood insurance should work for disaster survivors, not against them. So how's it working against them right now? You know, the primary problem with flood insurance is people can't afford it, uh, particularly the people who are most at risk and who will have the hardest time uh, recovering. Um, you know, FEMA says there are about 5 million uh, structures in the U.S. Uh, insured with flood insurance. 41 million Americans live in the 100-year floodplain. And as you know, we see in disasters like uh, the flooding in Kentucky, uh, you know, people who don't think of themselves as living in areas that flood are flooding more and more frequently, and they don't have flood insurance at all. Um, and then when um, families are unable to maintain flood insurance after receiving um, disaster recovery assistance, they're barred from receiving future disaster recovery assistance. Uh, you know, FEMA has just um, redone uh, how it, it charges premiums with the intention of making it more equitable, but it's going to raise premiums for 80% of policyholders, and we're already seeing people drop flood insurance because they simply cannot afford it. And obviously, a lack of good data can really be a hindrance to disaster yes. recovery. So briefly, what do you recommend to improve the collection of the right data? Well, uh, you know, survivors strongly recommend data sharing and data sharing agreement between agencies. You know, one of the, the issues uh, that, that folks really run into is that they are dealing with multiple agencies, multiple application processes. Um, but there are also issues around the collection and transparency of data 
um, you know, collected by federal agencies around these programs. So for example, FEMA has really never collected data on the race and ethnicity of applicants and beneficiaries and, you know, has actually said, well, we know we don't discriminate because we don't collect that data, which, you know, which is obviously not how, how discrimination works. So it, it is harder to identify disparities, um, you know, whether certain communities are being left out. And frankly, it's hard for the public to see where federal public money is going and who is benefiting and whether those programs are effective. And Maddie, that's all the time we've got. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming next, countries are promising to do more to address climate change, but not all are sticking to their word. We'll be right back. Every fall, world leaders meet to discuss climate change. But since last year's talks, few governments have taken substantial action. Harry Stevens is a graphics reporter at The Washington Post. Harry, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So this is the 27th annual um, summit for COP27. What is it? What's the purpose? The purpose of these summits is to get all of the countries of the world together to try to strengthen their commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions and to uh, for the rich countries to provide funding for poor countries to make it easier for them to cut greenhouse gas emissions so that uh, global warming isn't as serious as it could potentially be. This is an annual summit and last year countries promised to make big changes but the data you look like doesn't indicate that. So what did you find out? That's right. So last year in Glasgow uh, 200 countries or so all got together and they said we haven't done enough to lower greenhouse gas emissions to meet our target of holding global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So what we're going to do is we're all going to make stronger pledges next year. And we're going to come back and uh, we're going to talk about them again. And uh, only about 20 of the 200 countries actually went and made stronger pledges. So people who follow this were disappointed that so few countries actually went and did it. So why? I mean, 180 countries said they were going to do something and didn't. Why? What are they saying is the reason? So every country's process for making these pledges is a little bit different. Um, they're in, in some countries, uh, you can kind of do it by executive fiat. So, uh, the United States, the Biden administration's pledge just was from the Biden administration. They said, we're going to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50%. In some countries, it's not that easy. Uh, also, the pledges themselves are non-binding, which means they can say they're going to do something, but they might not actually do it. Um, but some countries might be hesitant to make a pledge that they know there's no chance they're actually going to fulfill. And of course, there's the war in Ukraine. Um, and the energy crisis that's following that, is that going to push people towards making the, the necessary changes for climate change? Or are they gonna say, we don't have the money right now, we can't prioritize this? It's definitely difficult to say. The uh, war in Ukraine has increased energy prices uh, globally. Um, spot prices for all sorts of fossil fuels have gone up. Um, as a result, that's been windfall profits for energy companies in the United States. It has also pushed some countries in Europe to consider uh, accelerating their transition to renewable energies, although you know, renewable power sources are intermittent, and so sometimes that can result in not as much power as you want. So other countries in Europe have also 
started to consider maybe reopening their nuclear plants, but it's definitely thrown uh, energy policy you know, a wrench in the gears. The Inflation Reduction Act was passed this year, and that set aside billions of dollars for climate and energy. What difference do you think that's going to make? Projections suggest that the Inflation Reduction Act uh, could lower U.S. greenhouse gas emissions from 30 to 40 percent by 2030. So that's pretty significant. It's more than what it was before the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, obviously. Um, it includes funding for U.S. production of solar panels, wind turbines, uh, better batteries, carbon capture technology, as well as uh, tax incentives for uh, electric cars, uh, home retrofits. So um, all those things combined, uh, projections do suggest that they will lower U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And how do you think American commitments and actions compare to other high emitters, namely China? Uh, well, so China, uh, interestingly, they did update their pledge uh, this year. But again, this just shows that you know, not all pledges are created equal because their pledge was not much better than it had been before. Um, so China is on pace to produce far more carbon emissions than would be consistent with holding global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. However, uh, a recent report from the International Energy Agency uh, did project that China's coal and oil use will peak this decade. Um, and so as a result, their overall emissions could start to come down, just not as much as uh, climate hawks would like. Well, speaking of climate hawks, what are you hearing from climate experts um, on where things stand now and what their projections are? So generally, uh, global emissions are projected to increase over the next decade uh, to hold global warming to this 1.5 target they would need to decrease. So people who watch the climate aren't very happy about that. Um, but it's also important to remember that it's not as if the Earth is going to burst into a ball of flame if we don't hit 1.5 degrees Celsius. It was a target that was set at this uh, UN conference in Paris in 2015. Um, it is the target that they have been trying to accomplish, but signs indicate that it's not going to happen. So the question isn't really so much will we hold temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius, but uh, you know, what do we do if we go above it? And the United Nations recently put out a report, um, their annual report on climate change. Anything new, anything um, surprising in that report? It's a mixed bag. So on the one hand, uh, projections for total global warming have gone down a little bit. Um, but again, it's based on so many unknowable factors. So they say, well, all these pledges combined, you know, we think global warming could be, you know, 2.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But that's if everybody does their pledges, and it doesn't seem like uh, that's going to happen. All right. Well, Harry, thanks so much for coming in. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Coming next, the federal government is facing a leadership crisis, according to one nonprofit organization. We look into this straight ahead. The Partnership for Public Service is a nonprofit dedicated to strengthening the federal government by developing effective leaders and recognizing excellence in the federal workforce. At the helm of that organization is Max Steyer. He's president and CEO of the partnership. Max, welcome. Thank you very much. You have a roadmap for renewing the federal government, which is a really big issue. But you break it down into a few main priority areas. 
You say that the federal government is facing a leadership crisis. Can you explain that? Absolutely. Uh, our proposition is that for any knowledge-based organization, leadership is everything. And our roadmap for reform is really focused on the sort of structural reforms that need to take place to allow our government to keep up with the very much changing world around it. One of the more fundamental issues is that we have a government uh, designed for a different era. Um, and in particular, we have bluntly way too many political appointees and way too many that require Senate confirmation. In a world with so many challenges that move so fast, we need a more professional government with leaders that um, are around for a longer period of time and can also uh, be focused on the health of the institution they're responsible for. So um, proposition number one is we should have fewer Senate-confirmed positions. There are 1,200 of those. Uh, and on average, um, a new administration waits almost uh, the first two years before they even get to nominating 30% of those nominees. And it, those folks are only in office for two years on average. So um, that would be the first step in terms of structurally creating a leadership system that better suits the, the challenges of the day. Another challenge area is in recruiting and retaining the workforce. What do you think is at the heart of that issue? So unfortunately, with as with many of the challenges facing our government, there's not a, a single thing that's at stake here. There really are four successive barriers to getting the right talent into government, which is fundamental. Uh, it begins with ensuring that um, we do more work to build the brand of government. Uh, lots of folks don't recognize that actually working in the government is the best place to um, be to lead a purpose-driven professional life. Secondly, talent doesn't know about the specific opportunities available to them. Third, and this is something that I think lots of people pay some attention to, and that is the hiring process itself is broken. And fourth, we need to do more to ensure that once you get great talent in, that we retain it. That means creating environments where those employees uh, can be engaged, where they can develop and where uh, they see not only that they're able to fulfill their purpose, but they're able to grow themselves. Uh, so those are the four things that need to happen right now. There are only 7% of the workforce is under the age of 30. I think that number drops to between three and 4% in IT. That's not the demographic diversity we need. And given the nature of the problems we face, we really do wanna make sure we get a diverse, incredible set of talent in to solve our big problems. And Max, speaking of leading a fulfilling career, you produce a yearly survey about government employee satisfaction. What are the trends in general? Is it going up or is it going down? So um, unfortunately, and I think this is true across the board in the private sector and the public sector, employee engagement scores have been going down. Uh, obviously, we live in a very, very challenging time with the pandemic, very difficult operating conditions uh, with the remote hybrid work, et cetera. The federal government is not immune to that. It's, it's actually being buffeted by those same issues. Uh, so, um, you know, one of the more encouraging signs is that the Biden administration has embraced the notion that uh, federal employees should be in a work environment that allows them to be as engaged, if not more engaged than in the private sector. Uh, so um, that's really important to set the right target. Now we need to see the investments needed to make that happen. There's some agencies that are doing incredibly well, and there are others that need to learn from them. And once again, this comes down to leadership. You know, everybody talks about innovation and technology modernization, but a common criticism is that federal workers aren't incentivized to be innovative and to take risks. How do you fix that? So it's a 100% right proposition. Um, the interesting thing is that when you look at the survey data that we just mentioned, there is um, 
a, a very strong desire uh, in, internal to federal employees to look for uh, better ways to solve problems. They are purpose-driven workforce, um, but they're not feeling the, the love. They're not feeling the support for that from uh, the, the leadership, and that's bluntly career and political. And I'm speaking in general terms. There's some exceptional leaders of, 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 of both stripes, um, but we need to do more in terms of creating uh, you know, capacity in our leadership to support um, innovation. And I think that is actually the most fundamental um, opportunity for improving both technology and innovation, different things, but nonetheless, same issue. And there are different roles to be played. I'm talking about the leadership inside the executive branch. Congress has a very big role here. Uh, one thing that would help a lot is to actually get appropriations out in time. Uh, and frankly, you know, the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, the 10-year appropriation for IRS, that's a huge opportunity. We should see more longer-term funding for federal agencies that will enable them to actually have a long-term plan for increasing technology investments and, and frankly, supporting the culture. And Max, your bio says that your favorite public servant is Teddy Roosevelt. Why is that? So, uh, you know, what's so fascinating to me is that um, in some sense, it's the era he lived in, in which, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt believed, like a lot of other Americans at the time, and he was a leader in doing this, that an effective government was essential to an effective democracy. Um, he understood, even in an era in which the problem set looks not nearly as bad as it does today, uh, that having a professionalized government where you have career civil servants um, as the dominant force in the government was fundamental to solving big prob problems and the success of our society. Uh, and he himself was an innovator. And, uh, you know, look at the national parks uh, and so much more. You know, he's a complicated figure, but um, he did do a lot of good. All right, Max, thanks so much. Always good to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.